we're going to go ahead and get started. As, as Craig said, truly thank, thank you to all the people helping and working, and thank you for coming. I know it's not always the, you know, the easiest, uh, you know, when you're not sure about the roads, and, and so glad you're here. If you weren't able to make it and you're watching online, thanks for, thanks for doing that. Thanks for watching online. I, I, I do feel like, you know, days like today, um, not that the roads were that bad. I mean, I, I, I drove straight in. I think most of us probably did. But, um, but when, you know, when there's a little bit of question mark, I, I, I feel like sometimes that's, that's the Sunday God really wants to do something. So that, that's certainly my prayer. Um, but if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to open them to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. We're continuing our study. We got back into this book study last week. And we went through those first five verses of chapter 5 and learned about the real risk of building because what was true historically of the nation of Israel during Nehemiah's time, what we saw is true of us spiritually today in 2022. And, and you know, that, that I, I just love that. I mean, truly, even after all these years of studying it, the Bible continues to amaze me on its relevancy and its applicability to every area of life. It's, it truly is amazing. I, I don't understand. I, I don't get it. Um, how everyone just doesn't believe that it's a supernatural book. It, it most certainly is. Uh, but, that, but that's its own topic. Um, getting back to those real risks of, of building that we looked at last Sunday. Uh, what we saw is those are things that our enemy uses to attack us within. Within our homes within our churches, within this church. And those risks that we, we looked at specifically were spiritual starvation and, and the lack of feeding of the flock and feeding ourselves and then just selfishness within the fellowship, selfishness within our homes, selfishness within the church, and then slave, slavery of our families to this world. And we broke those down for you, saw how they apply to us today. So if you weren't here last week and haven't had the chance to catch that, online, I encourage you to do so. It's, it's sort of the precursor to what we're going to look at today. But today we're going to see Nehemiah's response to those risks, how he handled this situation of discord, the situation of disunity within the family, so to speak. This was within the brethren, the Jews. It was, again, it was attack from within. All the other attacks, the attacks that they had seen and they had faced up to this point have been from without, right? They were all external enemies. So the way Nehemiah handled this current attack that we saw at the beginning of verse 5 is much different. Uh, the, what we're going to see today, how he handles it, is much different than how he's, how he's handled the others. And how he handles it gets to the theme for chapter 5, and that's condemnation. It's a little bit different than some of the other themes, but this is a, the theme of this chapter is condemnation. Um, and just to, to bring you up to speed, let me run through those the, the chapters real quick and uh, just to give you a quick reminder of the themes and it allows us to see the progression of the story and how we got to where we're at today. We started in chapter one with revelation, right? The problem of Jerusalem was revealed to Nehemiah and, and, and he was burdened and he prayed to God to, to be a part of that solution. And then we move into chapter two and we saw the theme of chapter two was preparation because while waiting for God to answer his prayer, Nehemiah prepared himself to talk to the king about this burden. That wasn't an easy thing to do, but, but God opened the door, gave him that opportunity and the king granted him leave and, and Nehemiah went to Jerusalem 
to see the situation for himself. And as he was doing that, he prepared himself to, to lay out the burden to the people of Israel. And, and he does it, and they get on board. And so chapter 3, we see the theme of construction, because that whole chapter, entire chapter is devoted to just laying out the workers and, and where they were working along the wall. But then chapter 4, opposition came, and, and that was the theme of chapter 4, was opposition. Again, this was the external opposition, and we had seen the opposition in, in previous chapters as well, particularly in, in chapter 2. But, but in chapter 4 is really when they ramp up their attacks, and, and we saw those enemies. And like I said, now we get to chapter 5, and we see this theme of, of condemnation. Because Nehemiah is going to very publicly condemn those richer Jews, those rulers and nobles who were in sin over the situation that we looked at last week. And so just to remind you of that, there, there was a famine, a dearth had been in the land, it had caused some food problems, food shortages, and the people had been mortgaging their houses and their lands and even selling their children into slavery to be able to buy food and pay their taxes and, and just survive. And amongst the Jews, those rulers and nobles, there were, there were some pretty unscrupulous individuals. And they were acting as modern payday lenders. And they were charging interest when they, won't, when they weren't supposed to charge interest according to the law. And this group was breaking the unity that had been formed within Jerusalem. You know, we talked about that last week. There had been great unity because everyone had rallied to the cause, and now that was in jeopardy. Uh, it was, that was being threatened, that, that, that unity and that togetherness. And as we saw in, in verse 1 of chapter 5, there was a great cry because of all that was going on. I think that's completely understandable when, when families are being forced to sell their children in order to survive. And, and so the mission of God seemed to be in jeopardy. And this was a, a real test to Nehemiah's leadership. Now, it had been tested in other ways up to this point, but this was what I believed to be the most difficult test. And what we're going to see today is there's a process that Nehemiah works through to help resolve the issue. And I think if we look at this biblically and allow the Spirit of God to teach us this morning, I think it'll help all of us. For when there are those times that we have to deal with discord and disunity within our families, within our church. There, there are really some great leadership lessons from Nehemiah that we're going to see today. And, and, and if you know about Nehemiah at all, there have been books written on the leadership aspects of Nehemiah, and we've not really focused on that up, up to this point, but we're going to look at a, a little bit of that today. But there are some great leadership lessons um, that, that we're going to look at that allow us to keep the mission of God at the center and don't allow the distractions of life and the distractions of, of just disunity and discord um, get in the way of what we're really trying to do. And, and, and again, that's a, that's a real risk. It's a real risk that we face in life. Just minor things even seemingly, but, but it turns out they're not minor. And they really cause us to stumble. And so all of a sudden, we land in a place and we're not even really sure how we got there. But we're off mission. And we're not focused on what God has us on and our minds not seeing things quite right. And so this is kind of the situation that we, we find the Jews in. And, and so Nehemiah w works through it. And so there are many great individual lessons as well 
we're just dealing with conflict even internally. Um, so, so even if you're not, you know, quote unquote, a leader, um, there's still much in this message for you, I believe, because we all have to deal with conflict at one time or another. I think that's you know, going to come as no surprise or I'll get no disagreement from that. That's part of living. Now, you know, for, for some of you, it seems like that's all you're dealing with. It's all the time. It's conflict. And you, you feel Job when he said in Job 5, 7, yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. And again in, in Job 14, 1, man that is born of a woman is of a few days and full of trouble. And, you know, I, I know for some of us it seems like that's our life and it just becomes conflict after conflict and after conflict. And, and I will say, not, I mean, there are always reasons for that, but, but I will say if that does describe you, that is something to analyze. That's something to look at. Maybe, just maybe, there's a common denominator in there that you need to deal with. And, you know, and if so... Maybe you'll find that common denominator in the mirror, but who am I to say? It's probably someone else's fault. But either way, whether you're always in conflict or just dealing with it when it pops up in your life, it, it is an inevitable part of life. And unfortunately for guys like me, it's also an inevitable part of leadership and ministry. And so knowing how to, to, to respond biblically, it, it's something we all need to get down. It's something we all need to understand in order to stay on mission, in order to build for the Lord. Because like we looked at last week, and this is, I think, on, on your, in your notes, internal conflict is the biggest risk to the mission. So, you know, Satan can do a lot, but man, when he gets inside and he starts tearing things up from within, and that, again, that applies in a church, that applies within a family, that applies at, at, at jobs, and you, that applies across the board. When things get messed up inside, you're really at risk for, for something to go astray. So let's look at Nehemiah's response to the situation, see what we can glean from it. We're going to read Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 6 through 13. And Nehemiah says, And I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words. And I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and said unto them, Ye exact usury, every one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. And I said unto them, We, after our ability, have redeemed our brethren the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. And will ye even sell your brethren, or shall they be sold unto us? Then they held their peace, found nothing to answer. Also I said, It is not good that ye do. Ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this usury. Let's stop this. Restore, I pray you, to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money, that was the interest. And of the corn and the wine, the oil that ye exact of them. They were also, they were taking money and they were taking anything they could get. Then said they, we will restore them, and will require nothing of them. So will we do as thou sayest? Then I called the priests and took an oath of them, that they should do according to this promise. Also I shook my lap and said, so God shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performeth not this promise. Even thus be he shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we, we just thank you so much um, for the time that we have together today. I thank you for, for the time we were able to just worship you in song and, and, and even hearing from Andy and, and what you're doing in Mexico and, and what you did there uh, in that medical missions conference. And so we're so thankful for that. Lord, I pray that you meet with us today. I pray that the, you know, we, when we look at passages like this that are very very practical and very hands-on, Lord, I pray that you use them in our life and really teach us something so that we can be better ministers uh, for you and, and better husbands and fathers and mothers and, and wives and, and, and children, sons and daughters, Lord, just that we can uh, more glorify you with our lives. So I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. I pray that it is honoring and glorifying to you, and I pray that your Holy Spirit uses it um, like only he can, that your word does the work that only it can in our lives. And we'll ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, so obviously we see Nehemiah's response, and we see that he doesn't do it flippantly, and then it's, it's pretty strong, and it's pretty swift. But what I want you to see is, is in that, in those verses, there's a process that he goes through that's important to understand when it comes to responding to, to discord and dealing with conflict. And it begins in a very familiar place for all of us. So what we're going to look at first is Nehemiah's initial reaction. Nehemiah's initial reaction. And we see very clearly in verse 6 that his initial reaction was that of anger. Right? It, it says it. We don't, we don't have to guess. You know, the, God's good to us in that way. Look, look there again at verse 6 very quickly. Nehemiah says, and I was very angry, all right? So the Bible's not that difficult to understand. And I was very angry when I heard their cry in these words. And anger is something that, that many of us, I would say most of us, know quite well, maybe even a little too well. And anger is also something that you see throughout the Bible. The Bible is a book dealing with describing the life of men and women throughout history, so you get to see them in the good, the bad, and the ugly. You get all of it. But the thing about anger is you also see it with God. You see it with Jesus. You see it with men at times where it's considered appropriate. So what that means is this. This is number one on your outline sheet. Not all, not all anger is sinful. Not all anger is sinful. You know, again, we're not, we're not doing brain surgery this morning. We're just breaking down some very practical elements that we're going to pull out from the text. So what we can see here is not... All anger is sinful, and this shouldn't come as a big surprise to us. We, we learn this from Paul's very careful distinction between being angry and sinning in Ephesians 4.26, right? Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. So, so we can be angry and, and not sin at the same time. The Bible teaches that God's angry, but he's angry with a very specific group of people. Psalm 7.11 says that God judgeth the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. So God is angry every day. That's a strong statement. And obviously God isn't in sin. Well, he's angry. It's a righteous anger, one that is justified because of the sinful action of the wicked. Moses is another great example of someone exhibiting this righteous anger. Exodus chapter 32, Moses had been up on Mount Sinai communing with the Lord. You know, the Lord gives him the two tables of stone. And, and the people of Israel start getting impatient. 
Exodus 32.1 says that, that Moses, when the people saw that Moses delayed, he, he was enjoying that time communing with the Lord. And they get impatient, and somehow they convince Aaron you know, to make a golden calf that they could worship. So the Lord knows it. He tells Moses, hey, listen, you got, you got to get down there. Your, your people have gone crazy. And they've corrupted themselves in your absence. So Moses comes down off the mount and look at his response in, in Exodus 32, 19. He sees the calf, the people worshiping. And it came to pass as soon as he came nigh into the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing and Moses' anger waxed hot. And he cast the tables out of his hands and break them beneath the mount. And those were the tables that God had given him that he had written with his finger. And what you see there is Moses isn't just angry. It, it, he was hot. He was fired up. So much so that he broke those tables of testimony that God had written with his own finger. I mean, those seemingly were kind of a big deal. And he didn't just drop them on accident. The Bible says he cast them down. He threw them down. That's how angry he was. But God didn't even get upset with Moses because his anger was righteous. God just wrote new tables. He didn't care about original manuscripts anyway. So he said, we'll just do it again. And another time you see righteous anger from an individual is with Saul. And listen, in the end, Saul turns out to not even be a good man. But in 1 Samuel eleven six, there was a time where the Spirit of God came upon Saul. And it resulted in great anger that impelled him to carry out the work of God. It says, and the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings. We won't take the time to look at that. But it was sin against the Lord. And his anger was kindled greatly. And the, sor the source of that anger was the Spirit of God. And then probably above all else, the Word of God reveals that the Lord Jesus himself got angry. Mark 3, 5, and Mark talks about how Jesus turned on the Pharisees in anger because of the hardness of their heart. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, stretch forth thy hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. So he was angry. Now, the interesting thing about this anger, it was due to his grief. And, and, and we're going to get there on, on where your anger, you know, it, the, the, what's causing it. But just know that anger and, and any emotion, for that matter, in and of themselves, aren't bad. Okay, what, what you'll get from this world and counselors from this world will tell you and warn you that there's trauma, there is emotional danger that, that comes from being around anger. And, and listen, there, of course, there's certainly some truth to that. And there can be emotional damage done to individuals, although that, that's hard to quantify. Uh, but I'm, I'm just saying that because I want you to know that God gave us our emotions. Therefore... Our emotions can be used constructively when used properly. And by that, I mean in accordance with biblical principles. So surely the anger Jesus displayed, it wasn't damaging to him. It wasn't damaging to anyone else. Now, there is a wrath of God that will be physically damaging to people, those that don't accept him. But that's not what we're talking about here. The only reason why I'm pointing this out is because there will be people that say the word of God in and of itself and people who live it out according to it being rightly divided, that is a damaging lifestyle. That, that, 
there is hate speech contained within the Bible that is emotionally damaging to people. That's false. That's demonic. And, and I'm not really even going to go down that line of thought. I just need you to understand this morning that to call all anger damaging or sinful without qualification, that constitutes an inappropriate use of Scripture. All right, that's all I want you to know. But the truth is, listen, we know this. We know quite well that just because not all anger is sinful, that doesn't mean it can't turn that way. And for most of us, the truth is much of the anger that, that we feel and then display is sinful. And you see that throughout the Bible as well. In fact, the Bible does give dire warnings about anger. For example, Proverbs twenty two twenty four says, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go. Ecclesiastes 7, 9 says, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. And Paul tells us very directly that anger is something to be put off because most of the time it is something coming from that old man, our old nature. Colossians 3, 8, but now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. And, and we could go on and on, but we're just going to let those few verses suffice. So, so here's the bottom line. There is such a thing as righteous anger, but most of the time, the anger we see and the anger that we display isn't righteous. And here's how you can know, and this is our second subpoint related to anger. Sinful anger has selfish motives. Sinful anger has selfish motives. I want you to look back at Nehemiah, and I want you to pay attention to why Nehemiah was angry. He was angry at the great cry. That's what, what was going on and, and, and the words that he was hearing. It, he wasn't even angry because he was worried that it was going to kill the building project. At least that's not what the word of God records. He was very angry when he heard their cry and these words. He was angry at the sin of the rulers and nobles. This had nothing to do with himself. And if you look back on the example of Moses and Saul and Jesus, the same is true. Jesus was grieved over the hardness of their heart, the Pharisees. And it made him angry at what they were doing. And there was nothing selfish about their anger. They were angry because the Lord was blasphemed. Because it was sinful activity and God is angry with the wicked every day. But they weren't upset for themselves. There was nothing selfish in their motives and listen this is just where the, the practical element of, of this passage comes in because this can be very tricky it's gonna be very tricky to maneuver and handle because there are times when someone does something to you personally and it's also sinful and it also blasphemes the Lord so what do you do in those circumstances can you be listen it's personal it's personal to you, but it's also sinful. It also blasphemes the Lord. Can you, not, can you be angry or can you not be angry? No, you absolutely can be angry because it's sinful, because it blasphemes the Lord, but you need to ask yourself, are you angry because of the sin against the Lord and the damage it does to the Lord's testimony and the ministry? Or are you angry because the sin was done to you? 
Listen, you know, Jesus and Paul and others told us that if we're going to live a godly life, that we're going to deal with some stuff. It's part of, of, of living a godly life. Part of standing on this book, it's not popular. And, and you're going to get some people against you. But you have to analyze, why is it? That anger that you're feeling, where is it coming from? And then even as important as that is, what are you doing with that emotion? And this really is, is key to, to helping you understand whether it's sinful or not. Because again, this is something none of us get perfect. This is hard. This is hard stuff. This is real life, dealing with personal things. So this is hard. So it's not sinful to be angry with sin. But you personally, if you're a Christian, we know that we're also supposed to be a dead man. Right? And, and we know verses like Psalm 119, verse 165. Great peace have them which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. All right, well, we can't just ignore that verse, but, but what do we do with it? What do we do in these situations? Because let's just be honest. Who in here has never been offended? Yeah, none of us. None of us. And yet, the Bible says, nothing shall offend them. Right? Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Listen, I wish I could live that out perfectly every day, but I struggle just like you do. And if that emotion of anger rises, I mean, how, how, can I, how can I help it? Like, I'm not trying to get angry. How can I help it from, that, from happening? Okay, I, I want to walk through this. Again, I want this to help you. Remember, emotions are God-given. There's nothing wrong with the emotion, whether it's anger or whatever it may be, in and of itself. So if you feel anger, even, even for, you know, for something that's happened personally, that doesn't necessarily mean you are in sin. The question is, what are you doing with that anger? Like, what's the source? We're going to continue to look at that. And then what are you doing with it? Because what we see biblically is that it, it turns to sin when you do one of two things. And again, it gets back to the source. Because these two things happen when you're being selfish with the anger. Right, so first, anger becomes sinful when you internalize it and you take it personally and you allow it to become what the Bible calls a root of bitterness. So you don't forgive and you certainly don't forget and you may not say anything, but you're angry and there's, there is danger in that. Because Hebrew 12, 15 says, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled because of a root of bitterness in you. And I, and I love the language used there. It describes it perfectly because we all know what a root is, right? The core of a plant typically grows underground, so it's hidden. But the stronger it gets and the deeper it grows, the stronger and more solid that plant gets. And whenever you allow you know, what I would call a seed of bitterness to get in, something's happened and, and you're angry about it personally, and, and, and maybe you don't even say anything to anybody, but the, there's something that, that, that plants in you. right? There's a seed of bitterness gets in you, and you internalize that. And you hide that seed of bitterness in your heart instead of hiding the word of God in your heart. 
like we're commanded to do. That seed will start to sprout some roots. And if you don't deal with it, those roots will grow deeper and stronger. And, and a root of bitterness, it, it's like weeds in your garden. You've got to control it as soon as it begins to rear its head. If you have a garden, if you plant flowers, you know what I'm talking about. If you start early in the spring, when those weeds first pop up, and you take care of them then, pulling them out by their roots, it's so much easier to deal with and to get control of. But if you wait, you let those roots spread, a root system begins to develop, you have trouble all year long. So don't internalize that anger and allow it to become a root of bitterness. That's sinful because it's selfish. And then the other way the emotion of anger becomes sinful is just the opposite. It's when you ventilate it. So these are your fighters. And when they're angry, you know about it and we all know about it. Well, that too is sinful because it's selfish. And you're mad that you were done wrong and, and you're going to let the other person know that. Well, Proverbs 19.11 says the discretion of a man deferreth his anger and it is glory to pass over a transgression. Proverbs 29.11 says a fool uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keepeth it in till afterwards. So this gets to the, just the ability to, to control the anger that we have. And if you can't control your anger, well, that too is sinful. Because it's selfish. Because it's just about you. So, so don't let it go that way. Don't let it become selfish. And this brings us to our next point. Nehemiah was very angry because of what was happening to the Jews. But what did he do next? After his initial reaction of anger, he performed what I'm calling an internal review. Look at the very beginning of verse 7. Then I consulted with myself. And he, he just had a heart to heart. He took a minute and he stepped back and said, okay, I'm very angry. <laughs> and there's some stuff I want to do. But let me check myself first before I wreck myself. And he checked his own motives. He performed the analysis that we were just talking about and asked himself some hard questions. And that gets to the key to this point. This is about being honest with yourself. Why are you angry? Is it righteous or is it selfish? Is it because the Lord was done wrong? Or is it because you were done wrong? So this gets to discipline. Are you able to take a second and look within yourself and control yourself if necessary? Proverbs 16.32 says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. And the word ruleth means has power. So again, who has the power over your life? Is it the Lord or is it you? Proverbs 25, 28, we've looked at this verse before. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. You see, our spirit needs to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. 
And if that doesn't happen, or you can't do that, then you're like a city that is set on a hill without walls. This is where Jerusalem was. In other words, without defense. And when your walls are down, you become easy prey to the devil, to this world system, and to your own flesh. And that's usually what we're dealing with when it comes to anger. And this is how you become distracted to the point that you're no longer building for the future. And you're just focused on what's been done to you or you're focused on what somebody else is doing that's wrong. But your motives aren't right. Your motives are selfish in it. And now you're off mission. And it happens so subtly and you're not building your home. You're not helping build this church to God's glory. And it's easy to get off track if you just don't take the time to be honest with yourself and check yourself in these arenas. I mean, that's the key, is honesty. And how you do that is you compare yourself to God's word. You check your motives to what this book has to say about it. Because that's objective truth. And, and you use this as your mirror. And then you respond to what you see in that mirror. That's what James tells us. James 1, verses 22 through 24. But be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. If any man be a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. That's a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way. And straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. And that describes us too much. We, we know what God's word says or we hear it on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night or, or whenever. And we're like, man, yeah, okay, that, that was me. But let me look in that mirror. I'm looking pretty good today. And you just keep walking. No, how do you look compared to the word of God? That mirror will tell you your motives if you'll let it. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, you know, we use this verse in a lot of different contexts, but it says, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. You are part of all things. So prove yourself. Prove your own motives. That includes you. Don't take your own word for it. James just said, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. We lie to ourselves all the time. So don't believe yourself. You're not trustworthy enough. Prove it. You need to use the perfect standard of God's word to test out your motives. That's what the internal review is about. And it's your line of demarcation. Because if you do the internal review and go to the Lord and ask him in honesty, and you find yourself to be in sin, being selfish, well, then now you know what to do. Because now you stop and you deal with you. You deal with yourself. You don't worry about the other person, not yet at least. You deal with you. In that moment, it's not about dealing with anyone else. It's about you making it right with the Lord. But if what you find in that honest internal review is that you're being, you're being righteous, you're being honest and you're righteous and there's injustice because of sin and it's compromising to the work of the Lord, well, now you're in a position to respond. And that brings us to the third step in the biblical response to discord that we see with Nehemiah. And that is an imperative rebu rebuke. You see, there are times that you have to address sin. 
there are times that it's completely necessary. It's imperative. And you can't run and hide. And you have to show courage to deal with discord. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. He consulted within himself and he determined that he wasn't angry because of selfishness, right? He, he was angry, he consulted himself, he did that analysis, and he was honest and said, okay, it's, it's not because of me. He was angry because of sin. So he did what he had to do, and he rebuked them. Look at verse 7. Then I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and said unto them, ye exact usury, every one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them, and I said unto them, We after our ability have redeemed our brethren the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. And will ye even sell your brethren? He's like, We're buying back our brethren. Like this, they have been sold to the heathen. We come in and we're we're trying to help them. We're trying to buy them back. And now you're the you're the you're you're buying them and selling. Why? Or shall they be sold unto us? He's like, This is crazy. And they held their peace and found nothing to answer. Also, I said, It is not good that ye do. Ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this usury. He said, we could do this, but we're not. Restore, I pray you, to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and of the corn, the wine, and the oil that ye exact of them. So, so like the Bible says, Nehemiah, he, he goes swift and strong. And he rebukes them. And, and like I just told you a second ago, sometimes rebuking someone or rebuking a group of people is necessary in the work of the Lord. It's not joyous. It's certainly not for me. I don't, I don't like doing it, but there are times it has to be done. When Paul was writing his pastoral instruction to Timothy, he told Timothy this in 1 Timothy 5.20, Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. And that verse has a specific context, but, but just know that there is a time to rebuke. And in 2 Timothy 4.2, he said, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. And, and by the way, just so you know, this verse is why I preach some of the messages I preach. And they can be hard, and they can come at you, and they can sting a little bit. But according to this verse, two-thirds of preaching is to have a negative aspect. Reproving and, and, and rebuking. But, praise the Lord, it's not all negative. We also need to exhort and encourage as well. And if you miss that part, you miss hope. So don't miss hope. What we have in Christ is wonderful. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. But listen, it can't be all sugar plums and candy canes. We need some black licorice in there too. Uh, if you like black licorice, you're crazy. It tastes like medicine. <laughs> but the problem is medicine's good for you. Now, when it comes to Nehemiah's rebuke, there are three elements that we can see in these verses that I, that I believe are essential in all rebukes. So if you find yourself in a position that, that you have to rebuke someone, here's how you do it. Because even the rebuke itself needs to be honoring to the Lord. I mean, if you're not careful, you'll get selfish in your anger even during a rebuke, and then you're in sin too. So obviously we want to avoid that. And the first thing Nehemiah did was to declare their rebellion, to declare their rebellion. He calls them out very specifically and starts by addressing their sin. And when, when I say their sin, I mean their disobedience to God's word. He didn't start by saying, hey, I don't like what you're doing here. 
No, what he said was, ye exact usury. That's where he started. And that was in direct disobedience to God's word. We looked at that last week. It's in direct violation of the law. We were not going to look at it again, but your reference there is Deuteronomy 23, verses 19 and 20. That's where he starts. He declared specifically, you are disobeying God's word. He didn't start with, listen, this is crazy. Why, I, don't, I hate what you're doing, and, and here's why. No, he started with the sin. And it was pretty interesting how, how, they, how they directly ignored, had been directly disobeying that portion of the law. But we do the same thing, don't we? We know what the Bible says, and sometimes we just completely ignore it. And then we look at ourselves in that mirror and just keep on walking. And because of their sin, Nehemiah set a great assembly against them. This is another great, you see a number of greats in this book. They had been doing a great work for a great God. when, When a great cry came forth, in response to that great cry, Nehemiah sets a great assembly against them. And this just basically shows the public nature of the rebuke. In our context, in, in this dispensation, it would be like calling the church together and do it pu- doing it publicly in front of the entire church. And you see that progression in Matthew 18, even, in dealing with conflict amongst brethren. And after going to that person individually and then with two or three others, you see the next step in Matthew 18, 17. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. And it goes back to, to 1 Timothy 5.20. Some sins need to be addressed in front of everyone. And what we're typically dealing about, talking about there are, are public sins. Public sins need to be addressed publicly. This is what Nehemiah was dealing with. This was a very public sin. So Nehemiah declared their rebellion, and then the next step in his rebuke was to decry their results. He talked about, listen, what you're gaining out of this, it's sinful. Nehemiah said, well, you've been buying and selling your brethren like commodities. We've been doing the opposite. We were buying them back and giving them their lands back. And your results, your financial gain is selfish. And it didn't show love for your brothers and sisters at all. And what a shame it was. And you can see that they were ashamed of it. Because at the end of verse 8, It says, then they held their peace and found nothing to answer. They didn't have anything to say. They knew they were wrong. But even more than the shame that it brought to them, it brought shame to the Lord. What they were doing hurt the Lord's testimony. So their outcome, the result of what they were doing, was awful. Because it brought shame to the Lord. Nehemiah said in verse 9, Ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? Shouldn't you do right for the sake of others? Because here's the thing. Others sure are watching. Others are watching. They always are, including our enemies. They're always watching. And they want just something that they can grab hold of. When Nathan was dealing with David regarding his sin with Bathsheba and then his sin with Uriah, listen to what he said to David in 2 Samuel 12, 14. He said, How be it, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. 
So Bathsheba was pregnant, and he, he killed her husband. And he said, listen, what you've done here is great, it's given the enemies of God a great opportunity to blaspheme him. And that's what we're talking about here. And this applies to us as well. We should cons- you should consider, I should consider, what we do just because we're Christians. The Lord's name is at stake. Philippians 2.15 says that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, not needing rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Why? Among whom ye shine as lights in the world. We're the lights of the world. We should shine forth Christ. We shouldn't be living a life that needs to be rebuked, that's not blameless and is not harmless. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2, Paul told the Corinthians, Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. So you should always be asking yourself, is what I am doing is the result of this, this choice? Is it worth it? Does it bring a reproach to the Lord? And if so, don't you fear him enough to stop it? Man, the results of that lifestyle, man, they're just never good. And then after decreeing, decrying their results, the last step he takes in the rebuke was to demand their repentance. Look at verse 10 and 11. I likewise, my brethren and my servants, might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this usury. Let's stop it. No more. Restore, I pray you, to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and the corn and the wine and the oil that ye exacted them. He told them to repent and then restore all the wrong that they had done. And listen, when it comes to a rebuke, repentance has to be the goal. Repentance is the ultimate goal. If you're in that position and you're rebuking someone, but you really don't want them to get it right... You really don't want to see them repent and and get things the way they need to get them? Well, then you need to go back and check your motives. Because ultimately, repentance is what the Lord always desires. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Repentance is what the Lord desires, so that's what we should desire also. So a rebuke has to end there. How do they get it right? A clear path back. And Nehemiah made it clear. He told them, here's what you have to do. And guess what? They listened. And that brings us to the fourth, the last step in biblically responding to discord. And again, this is always the goal, but unfortunately it's not always the reality. Because what we see with these Jewish rulers and nobles is immediate repentance. Look at verse 12. Then said they, we will restore them and we will require nothing of them. So will we do as thou sayest? Then I called the priests and took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. Also I shook my lap and said, So God, shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performeth not this promise. Even thus be he shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did according to the promise. And this is interesting because the guilty ones here, those that Nehemiah is rebuking, they promised to return it all. But Nehemiah said, Listen, you still got to prove it. And he made him take an oath, a vow, 
that, that shaping, shaking of the lap that was part of it there at the beginning of verse 13. That was a Jewish tradition that represented condemnation. Nehemiah was saying, if you don't do what you're saying, if you don't keep your word, that God will deal with you appropriately in condemnation. And keeping a vow with the Lord, it's a serious deal. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 and 5, when thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. And listen, we do that with the Lord all the time, or at least sometimes. And we do it flippantly. And we make promises when we're in tight situations. And we vow a vow. And then we don't keep, you know, we don't hold it. We don't, we don't pay it. We don't finish it. We shouldn't do that. You know, how many promises have you made to the Lord that you didn't keep? Listen, I, I, I'm ashamed to say I've got my list. You've probably got one too. And God knows. He knows. And praise the Lord for grace. But we should never take advantage of that grace. God forbid. And the group here in Nehemiah, they did keep their promises. That's how it ends in verse 13. And it also ends with everyone in agreement. They all said amen. And everyone was praising the Lord. And with that, unity was restored. And the real risk had been averted. Because Nehemiah took a biblical approach to dealing with the problem. And he understood what was inside him, he addressed it publicly. He didn't allow his anger to become sinful and selfish. He examined himself, found that it was righteous, and then he confronted the offenders. And that's not always easy to do, but he did it because that's what was necessary for the mission. And he moved himself aside and he rebuked those that needed it. And listen, there is a lesson in there for all of us. And how great it is that they repented. Man, I wish that we would see that today. It doesn't seem like we get to see that very often. But when we do, it is a time for and a reason to praise the Lord. And then get back to work. That's what we're going to see next week. You see, there's too much at stake. We've got to get everybody back on the same page, and then we've got to keep moving. Let's deal with what we need to deal with. Let's stay unified in the process, and let's build our lives, our homes, our family, and this church to God's glory.